0: In fact, the Apostle Paul said, if I give my body to be burned and give everything I have to the poor, but have not love, it profits me absolutely nothing. We're in a series of messages on why believe, questions non-Christians ask. Today we take up another issue found in Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. And the question that is heard frequently is this question. Won't a good moral life get me to heaven? Won't good deeds get me into heaven? Now, you and I think we know the answer to that question. But let me remind you, that is still what every system of faith and every system of religion in the world is based on, the idea that man must do something to earn his own salvation. But Paul tells us that God will justify us only by faith in Christ. And so Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 15 through verse 21, Paul deals with that issue when he raises the idea of justification to the Galatians for the very first time. By the way, let me give you a very important piece of information. Did you know that every railroad track, the normal railroad tracks in America, are four feet eight point five inches wide? Four feet eight and a half inches wide. And do you know why American railroad tracks are four, eight and a half inches wide? Because British railroad tracks were four feet eight and a half inches wide. And do you know why British tracks were four feet eight and a half inches wide? Because all the old English roads were four feet, the ruts were four feet eight and a half inches wide. And do you know why all the old British roads had ruts that were four feet eight and a half inches wide? Because all of the old uh, carriages in England were four feet eight and a half inches wide with the wheels. And do you know why all the English carriages were four feet eight and a half inches wide? Because the Roman invaders in Britain brought carriages that were four feet eight and a half inches wide. And do you know why the Roman chariots were four feet, and a half, four feet eight and a half inches wide? I'm going somewhere. <laughs> the Roman carriages were four feet eight and a half inches wide because that's what fit the backside of two horses. And today, the reason we have railroad tracks that are four feet, eight and a half inches wide is that that's the average width of the average Roman uh, horse put with another horse in the back pulling a chariot wherever they went. Isn't that fascinating? Now, what's fascinating about that is that this has been going on for 1,500 years, four feet, eight and a half inches wide. And nobody's ever changed it. We're, doing, we're building railroad tracks exactly the width of Roman chariots made 1,500 years or 2,000 years ago. There are just some things that are so easily passed on and it's extremely difficult to change. Adam and Eve had two choices. They could either be justified by God or they could be justified by man. and they chose to kill an animal and hide the shame of their sin with skins. Abraham and Ishmael represented two ways of salvation. Abraham represented the way of faith and Ishmael represented the way of works. Jacob and Esau represent two ways to be saved. Jacob represents the way of faith, whereas Esau represents the way of works. Cain and Abel represented two ways. Cain represented the way of works, and Abel represented the way of faith. And from the beginning of man, all down through history, Man is saved either by works or by faith. And the answer to the question is, won't a good moral life get me to heaven? Is this, it never did and it never will. And yet man continues to persist like the four feet, eight and a half inch rule. Man continues to persist in believing that he can save himself. But there's not one single solitary thing you can do to save yourself. Bildad, uh, one of Job's uh, adversaries, if you please, ask a question, how then can a man be justified before God? If he isn't justified by works, how is he justified? And the answer is, he is justified by, what's the word, class? By faith. He is justified by faith. Martin Luther said it this way, the principle of justification by faith is not only a central doctrine, it is the main doctrine. It is what he used to challenge the institutional church of his day, which said that man can be saved by what he does, and Martin Luther came across that great passage in Habakkuk, the just shall live by what? Faith. And modern man still persists today in believing. Ask almost any man on the street who is not trained in the Bible, and he will say, well, I'm, go- I'm doing the best I can to get to heaven. And I'm here to announce to you that the best you can do up there in the balcony is not good enough to get you to heaven. Amen? And the answer to the question is, uh, among non-Christians, the answer to that question is not some kind of clever argument that will put them in their place. The answer to the issue, can a good moral life get you into heaven, is to give back to the world the truth. And that's what Paul gives in this passage. It is to explain to the world, here's why a good moral life cannot get you into heaven. Now look at the text with me, if you will, please. Verse 15. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we, even we, we Jews... We, Peter and Paul, have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith into Christ. Now, first, Paul gives us an introduction to the truth, which answers the question, why believe? Paul introduces us to the idea of justification. It is a legal term, and it means this simply. It means to be declared innocent, to be be declared as innocent of any guilt. It is the opposite of condemnation. Condemnation is when you're declared guilty by somebody, but justification is to be declared innocent. It means that God treats me just as if I had never sinned. It is the opposite of condemnation. Now, condemnation can come in many ways. It's what happens when your husband comes in and says, what are we having for supper? And you say, chicken. And he says, oh, no, not one more night of chicken. That's a form of condemnation. But God gives a very clear explanation of how he justifies men from all of his wrong. Notice verse 15. We who are Jews by nature and not sinning Gentiles... Now, he implies that there is still sin in the Jewish nature, but he says we Jews should know better. We should know better than to think that we can be justified just by the works of the law because for all of our history, we've tried to be justified and nobody's ever been justified by the law. Now, there are two certain things everybody ought to remember. In fact, these hang over the world from the Christian faith from the, from the uh, Jewish faith, these two truths hang over the world and everything we believe about government, politics, society, etc., And that is this. One is that God is holy and the other is man is a sinner. God is holy and man is not. And if you got those two things straight, you'll probably be more right about government. You'll probably be more right about society. You'll probably be more right about economics when you understand God is holy and man is not. Those are two things that we begin with when we understand God. Now we look at the human problem. If there's a a problem... Why do we need to be justified? Why should we even have to ask the question, how could a man be saved by a good moral life unless there is some kind of a problem here? So this explains a human problem. Watch it carefully. God created us to live with him. He is holy and cannot exist with sin. So man sinned, therefore God put him out of his presence. Because of man's condition, he is separated from God. He cannot live up to God's standard. So God provided Christ as a substitute to pay the price for his sin so that man could be forgiven on the basis of Christ and thus restored to fellowship with God, which is what God intended originally. And I just gave you a profound theological statement in eight statements that took about 45 seconds, but they explain why why it is man is separated from God and why he has to be justified either by good works or by Christ because of man's condition. There's a a passage that Paul gives us which gives a great insight to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Turn to it for a moment. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we usually quote this to prove that a man should not marry a non-Christian woman, and a Christian woman should not marry a non-Christian man. And Paul makes his point when he says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. But now here's what's important. For what fellowship or what contact or union, communion, has righteousness with iniquity or lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And Paul lays down the basic principle which explains why man in his rebellious state runs from God and must be justified to God because righteousness has no partnership with iniquity. So now Paul has introduced the idea of justification to us. Let's look at his declaration next in verse 16. Galatians 2.16 Paul makes a declaration about justification. And here it is. We know, we Jewish people know, that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have even believed, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now the law is God's commandments. The works of the law are everything, all the acts of obedience to his commandments. The Judaizers said something like this. If you're going to be declared righteous before God, you must keep the law. Do everything God requires and don't do anything that God forbids or prohibits. Oh, and by the way, on top of that, you must keep the ceremonial law, which means never shake hands with a Gentile unless you've washed your hands as soon as you've shook with him. Can you imagine trying to practice that one today? And so that was the Judaizers' concept. Paul came to challenge that. He said, a man is not justified by the works of the law. It's the first thing he says in verse 16. It's the last thing he says, in verse 16. And why does he say it? Because he is saying it because no man has ever been justified by the law. We try to live a good moral life, but do you know anybody who's ever lived good enough to fulfill God's perfect standard? I mean, uh, uh, Laura, you married Dale, but uh, I'm going to ask you to confess publicly here today uh, has he kept all the points of the law? He has. <laughs> wow are you in for some surprises (laughs) you know I I said to somebody one time who asked me about this why, why can't we live a good moral life good enough to please God because there's only one man who ever did that and he's already died The answer is there's only one who was ever good enough to live a completely perfect, including Dale, and and that was Jesus, and he no longer is here. So a man is not justified by the works of the law, Paul says. We're justified by faith in Christ, faith in the one who did keep the law. That's the religion of man in the marketplace today. If you do enough good things, and you do more good things than bad things, when you come to heaven, God will weigh your good things and your bad things, and if your good things outweigh the bad, then you get to heaven. But is that good enough when man has broken God's law and remains separated or under condemnation from God for his sinful condition? John Stott noted in this verse that there's an aspiring set of emphases here. First, he says there's a general statement, verse 16. A man, any man, is not justified by the works of the law. Then there's a personal statement. But Peter and I have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ. Then he makes a universal statement, for by the works of the law shall no flesh anywhere, not a king, not a brilliant man. No one in any tribe can ever be justified by the works of the law. Billy Graham was interviewed on public television last night by by David Frost. I started to say Robert Frost. (laughs) That would have been a a real coup for public TV. Uh, He was interviewed by uh, by David Frost last night. And uh, he said, uh, Mr. Grammy he said, what how many of you saw that? Did anybody else see that? He said, Mr. Grammy he said, uh, wh- what is the main problem today? And without batting an eye, Billy said, sin. Sin is the main problem today. And then later in the same program, he said to him, when you get to heaven and see God, what's the first thing you're going to say? He said, I'm going to fall down at, his, and, at God's feet and I'm going to say, I'm a sinner saved by grace and nothing I ever had did I ever do to deserve. That's what Peter is saying. Even we, Jews, Paul said, I'm a a Jew of the Jews. I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. But even I had to believe in Christ Jesus to be justified by faith in Christ because I was not good enough to keep the law. Therefore, we know that a man is not justified. Therefore, we have believed. We've experienced it. Therefore, we know it from the Old Testament now that we see the failures of man in the Old Testament to be justified by works. The third thing that comes up here is a question in verse 17. Now Paul's critics are going to answer back to him and say, wait a minute. If while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister or an agent of sin? Certainly not. Now, this was a a dangerous doctrine, the Judaizers said. This is terrible of you to tell men that they don't have to earn their salvation. What an awful thing. And their argument went something like this. If we're justified by faith and not by works, then you encourage a person to go on in sin and break the law and think he can get away with it. Therefore, you make Christ the agent of sin. See, that was the argument. It's the same argument men use today. You mean I don't have to work for my salvation? That's right. You mean I don't have to work to remain saved in God's presence? That's right. You mean then I'm free to do anything I want to do? That's wrong. So Paul said, oh, God forbid that you should make Christ the minister or the excuse or the reason or the agent for sin. You see? And so he says, if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. If I have been saved by the grace of God under good works, and I go back to live a life of of works in order to try to make God happy, I make myself a transgressor. I become a transgressor, an even greater transgressor, and he'll explain why in verse 21. So here is the question. Don't we make Christ responsible for man's sin? Surely a man isn't free to do anything he wants to do. Paul replies, if after my justification, I still sin, that is my fault and not Christ's fault. Don't blame him. But now Paul takes this opportunity to really lay down a coup d'etat doctrinally. He says, wait just a minute. People who ask a question like that don't understand that when God saves us on the basis of our faith in what Christ has done, in the, on the basis of the fact that Christ lived a perfect life, was tested by the law, never sinned, then died on a cross to satisfy God's judgment for our sin. He said, if... If that's true, I want you to understand there's something else. God doesn't just declare us righteous. He changes our character inside. That's the thing. Paul says, wait a minute. I, through the law, died to the law. Now he moves from the question to an explanation in verse 19. I, through the law, died to the law. Because when I accepted Christ, I accepted Christ's satisfaction of the law as my substitute. He did what I could not do, that I might live, verse 19, to God. And here Paul brings us to the resurrection and the crucifixion and says that the answer to the question, if a man sins after he's been saved, he uh, and he goes on and nullifies the grace of God, he doesn't realize that there's been a change of his heart. I died to sin, and I now have been given new life, new character, new power to live above sin through the resurrected Christ. I have been raised up. I am living in a totally new sphere. So verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, But Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, the life battling sin, I live by faith in the Son of God just as I was saved by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So when I accepted Christ, Paul says, I wasn't just declared righteous. I, was, I died to the law, and I was made alive to Christ, quickened and given new life, so that the life that lives in me is not I, but Christ living in me. And that's how we live above sin. That's the answer. This week we were on vacation with 11 grandchildren, four children, four sons-in-laws and daughters-in-laws, And uh, it was wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. (laughs) One morning, we were trying to eat up the rest of an old watermelon. And I had one of my four-year-old grandsons, Holman, sitting at the table with me. And he said, what you eating, Papa? I said, I'm eating watermelon for breakfast. Got to finish it up. You know, I'm the human scavenger. Whatever's left when you're on vacation, you got to eat the last two days, Right. I mean, man, I ate more the last two days than I ate the other five because I was cleaning everything up. I mean, they'd shove it in, here's some leftover lasagna, you want that? Here's some leftover hot dogs, you want that? Here's, this is for breakfast, please. Oh, here's some leftover watermelon, you want that? So I was eating a piece of watermelon. He said, could I have a piece of that stuff? He says, Papa, he said, that's red like strawberries. I said, yeah, but it's watermelon. And then he saw those little black things in there and he said, Papa, what are those? I said, they're seeds. And uh, so he tried to pick one up, and it was slippery. A- and it spit right out of his finger. And uh, I said uh, to him, oh, those watermelon seeds are slippery, aren't they, almond? And he called to one of his sisters and said, come over and look at my salt, strawberry beads. <laughs> and he wondered how I was able to manage a bite of cold watermelon and then dribble those seeds out of my mouth one at a rather than pick them all out. Sometimes they're hidden in watermelon, right? I mean, and when they're hidden, you don't swallow them. You manipulate the tongue. The tongue is a wonderful thing. And you pull those seeds out and pack them over on the left side until you get the delicious watermelon down. And then you pull them back out and drop them on the plate one at a time. That's when you're on vacation. <laughs> and then he said to me, Papa, why are those beads so slippery? He, couldn't, he, he wouldn't say seeds. I, I think he could. Why are those beads so slippery? And I said, because they have lived in the watermelon, surrounded by the watermelon, surrounded by the liquid and the juice of the watermelon, so that they have absorbed it and they carry that slipperiness because they've lived inside that watermelon. Now, a Christian has been not only legally justified by Christ, he has been put into the sphere of Christ. And when I live in the sphere of Christ, I am in union with Christ. And when I am in union with Christ, I am to take on the properties of Christ. That is why Paul said, if we have died with him, we must live with him. God didn't just reckon us uh, forgiven and righteous. He gave us a brand new heart And a brand new life, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. That is why old things pass away and all things become what? New. So that justification not only deals with us legally before God, but gives us a brand new nature and new character so that we don't want to sin. I'm often asked by people who don't believe in the security of the believer, Well, you mean to tell me that now you've been saved, you can do anything you want to do? Yeah, I can do anything I want to do, and I'm still saved. The difference is if you're really saved, guess what? You won't want to do it. In fact, Paul says in Galatians 5, if after you sin, you do something and you keep on doing it, you prove that you've never really been born into the family of God. There it is. He gives us an explanation. I have been, I love verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, so it is no longer I who live. I'm not fighting the temptation of lust or materialism or greed or anger. It is Christ in me who carries the load. He's given me a new nature. Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, because I've died to sin with Christ, I've been resurrected with Christ, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And notice how intensely personal verse 20 is. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me seven times. Paul makes that personal. Paul says this is a new character. This is a new life in me. I don't have a desire to get drunk on Saturday night because I've got Jesus in me. I don't have a desire to take something which belongs to someone else because I have Jesus in me. I don't have a desire to take advantage of people because I have Jesus in me. I don't have a desire to dishonor this body. I have Jesus in me and I would not dishonor Jesus in this temple. Paul finally brings this passage to a conclusion in verse 21 when he says, I do not set aside the grace of God For if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died in vain. If righteousness comes through the law, if I can do enough good deeds, if I can give enough to the United Way to save myself, if I can cook enough meals for sick people. And by the way, all those things are good. I don't do those things in order to be saved, but because I have been saved. I want to feed somebody, amen? I want to help somebody. I want to encourage somebody. If they're in need, I I want to meet that need, not in order to become a child of God, but to manifest or to demonstrate that I am God's child with his nature in me. And so Paul takes the two most basic pillars of the Christian life, the grace of God and the death of Christ in verse 21. See them? Grace of God and the death of Christ, most basic pillars of the Christian life. And he says, hold it right there, he says, I do not set aside the grace of God. If I am saved by God's grace, but I've got to do works to please God, then I have nullified or set aside the grace of God. For if I could be made righteous through the law, then Christ has died for nothing. (laughs) Why did he die if I can save myself? I don't believe that everybody who thinks they should be able to do enough good moral deeds to be saved does it just because they want to master their own lives, though some do. I don't believe everybody who thinks that they need to work in order to be saved or to stay saved wants to do it so that they can take pride and boast of their own salvation, pulling themselves up by the bootstraps. Folks, you can't do that. Most of us don't even have any boots. I think most people in the 20th, late 20th century who want to save themselves do so because it has been so ingrained and so passed on that we believe it is our part It is human responsibility and human accountability to take care of ourselves. And I'm here to tell you there's not one good thing you can say or do to earn the sacrifice of Christ. It was totally based on the love of Jesus and totally based on God's grace, unmerited, undeserved, that he gave to us. It is not a good thing to try to save yourself by being moral or good. Frankly, it's a rather dreadful thing. And it is a lie from Satan who is the father of all lies to say that man can save himself because it denies the nature of God which is grace and it denies the purpose of Christ coming into the world which is death to die for the sins of man. And when we say that it's Christ plus works, we are refusing to let God be the God of grace that he is. And we are refusing to accept the reality that it was my sins and your sins which put Christ on that cross. And that's why Luther said over and over again in his writings, we've got to keep beating it into our heads. Salvation is by faith in Christ alone and not in works. So there you have an introduction. And you have a declaration, a question, an explanation, and a conclusion in verse 21. Let's answer the question then directly. Won't a good moral life get me to heaven? The answer is no. But I want you to know more than just the answer no. I want you to know why. And I want you to be able to explain to a world that thinks they've got to save themselves that salvation comes by faith in Christ and in Christ alone. And here are four things I want you to remember in answering that question. Number one, no one can live sufficiently good enough to satisfy God's holy nature and demands. The best person in this room falls far short of God's holiness and God's demands. Secondly, good works and a good moral life is not even the issue. That's not the issue of our separation from God. We're separated from God because of our sin, which incurred a penalty, death, which is separation from God now, which is why men without Christ run from God, rebel against God, hide from God, and it will mean eternal separation in the life to come unless we have been redeemed by faith in Christ. Good works are not the issue. That's why a good moral life won't save anybody. The issue is death. The payment for sin is death. It's got to be met before God. Thirdly, the answer is no. A good moral life won't get me to heaven because if I believe that, it makes the cross of Christ absolutely useless and unnecessary and you want to tell me that this one historic event which changed the whole world is totally unnecessary, then you've got a problem with history. Fourth, the answer is no because we nullify or set aside the grace of God when we believe that man can live a good moral life and save himself. We nullify the goodness or the grace of God. Often I have to tell people it is as important to learn how to receive as it is to learn how to give. Some of us love to give, but we don't want anybody to do anything for us. Every now and then I meet people like that. I, I can take care of myself. Wait a minute. None of us here can completely take care of ourselves. And that is why the grace of God is so valuable. And we set it aside or we nullify it if we think somehow we are good enough to save ourselves. And we don't need the grace of God. I want to tell you, I, yesterday morning we were at the beach and I I went out. I've been working on this message and reading all week. I got up, I woke up about a quarter to five and I thought, well, there's no need for me to lay in bed anymore. And I know in about an hour and 15 minutes the sun's going to rise and I'd like to see another sunrise on the ocean. Don't you love sun? I love sunsets on the ocean. You like sunsets on the ocean? Oh, I love them. But I love a sunrise. Uh, The sea is calm. There's almost nobody there. I'm down there at Seaside Baptist all by myself. I could look down that beach and there were only two other people. And when I watched that sun peep over the hill and the sun shine on that water and I looked at all the world and not a cloud in the sky at 6 o'clock or 605, whenever that came about, uh, not a cloud in the sky. My heart just raced to say, wow. What a world God has given us. What a God who made such a world. And then I began to think of his goodness to me. I'm just one little person, like a grain of sand on the sea. And I'm so appreciative of his grace and his goodness and his love and his watch care. I wouldn't do anything to turn aside or to nullify or to slap the face of God by thinking that I can do anything by myself. I am existent by the grace of God. I have been saved by His grace. I have been called by His grace. I live by His grace. I will die by His grace. I will go to heaven by His grace. And we cannot set aside or nullify the grace of God. We dare not do it, but stand back as creatures and say, oh God give me everything you want to give me. I accept it because of who you are. Amen and amen. Let's stand in prayer.